0: The Liberating Arts seeks to articulate the enduring relevance of a liberal arts education during a time of pandemic and protest. Through our online platform, we will host a series of conversations with writers, academics, institutional leaders, and public intellectuals about the nature of the liberal arts, their formational purpose, and their moral significance in a time of great cultural disruption. We hope to inspire viewers and listeners To learn more about the liberating effects of these arts on their own lives. To find out more, please visit www.theliberatingarts.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, Spotify, or YouTube.
1: Welcome to the Liberating Arts Definition Channel. I'm Rachel Griffiths, Assistant Professor of English and Director for the Integration of Faith and Learning at Sterling College in Central Kansas. Today, I'm hosting a conversation with Dr. Perry Glanzer, who is a professor of education at Baylor University and editor-in-chief at Christian Scholars Review. I'm really looking forward to having a conversation on the liberal arts and American education with Perry. So Perry, I'm wondering if you can get us started by providing a more thorough introduction to yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about your uh, teaching and research interests.
0: Sure. Um, I'm a professor of educational foundations at Baylor University. I've been there since 2002. Um, Before that, I taught a year in Russia. So um, I've been interdisciplinary really most of my life. Uh, My undergraduate major was religion, history, political science. My master's was in church state studies. And then I studied ethics uh, and took classes in a variety of courses. And when I came to Baylor, I taught in three different subject areas. Uh, now I just uh, teach in two. But uh, my, really, my research interests have been on uh, the relationship between Christianity and education and moral education. Okay,
1: great. Thank you for that introduction. Um, can you define the liberal arts? Share um, how you define it? There are lots of different ways that uh, people are defining it these days. Um, And then um, I'm also interested in whether or not you modify that definition when you're talking specifically about Christian liberal arts.
0: Yes, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I should just note, Right. There have been lots of different definitions of liberal arts throughout history. Uh, For example, traditionally, they're known as sort of seven liberal arts. Aristotle didn't come up with that, but it came up uh, earlier before the university, but even one of the early uh, figures who was just right before the start of the university, Hugh of St. Victor, he had over 20 um, different kinds of liberal arts, all the way from sort of theoretical and practical, um, logical and uh, mechanical. So you can fit a lot of things in there. I prefer not to associate the liberal arts. You asked about my own definition. I associate or I prefer not to associate them with particular subjects, which is a little different than most people. I would, If I was to define it, and I actually wrote it down just so I'd make sure and get it right, um, I would call them essential spheres and ways of knowing. Um, th- these would be things like theology and knowing the triune God, uh, knowing texts, knowing nature, um, people, for example, psychology, sociology, numbers, logic, Uh, deductive and inductive and non-textual culture Um, and you can fit a lot of things in there all the way from art to Mm -hmm. music and those sorts of things Um, so yeah i think because i think the liberal arts are going to vary even from different culture how we think about them but i think you can still fit them into those categories around the world
1: great essential spheres and ways of knowing yeah that we said yeah okay
0: and so what I would say is I don't modify that definition. I actually would argue that Christianity has the fullest definition, um, especially if you don't include God, then our ways of knowing are truncated.
1: Okay. All right. Great. Um, so my next question um, comes from your book, which I'm going to hold up for, for people who are, um, who are watching us, um, Restoring the Soul of the University, um, which you wrote with Nathan Allman and Todd Um, And before I get to my question, I'll just say that um, briefly that I did a discussion group with some Sterling faculty um, around this book um, right when it um, right when you published it um, and that um, our reading of the book and the discussions that we had um, ended up being so helpful and the book was so influential that it inspired an interdisciplinary program. Um, that we have been running for a few semesters now um, called Theology Plus. And that has really helped us at Sterling College to have a a sort of a more unified vision of our work here. Um, So thank you for um, for writing the book. You know, we we really appreciated it here at Sterling College. Um, So so my question um, is, could you share more about the American idea of the university? Um, and talk about ways that the liberal arts tradition has, or perhaps has not influenced the creation of American colleges and universities?
0: Sure, well, certainly the, I mean, the traditional university in Europe has a liberal arts college, and then the three uh, graduate programs, of course not every university had this, but the three uh, prof- uh, graduate programs you consider would be theology, law and medicine. And so when the Puritans came here and started Harvard, they just started with a liberal arts college. And really that's all there was in America. You could say up until, you know, about 1876, I mean, there were some graduate programs earlier before that at Yale. Um, But so for really the liberal arts college defined American education from the start. Um, And so it made it different from, from Europe in that respect. Now, what happened with the creation of the research university in 1876 with Johns Hopkins University is that the liberal arts sort of reverted to its usual place of being, um, I wouldn't call it the handmaiden of, you know, theology and uh, law and medicine, but still it was the entryway into those programs. And as a result, um, many of the research universities today I mean, America has a real strong tradition of liberal arts colleges within these research universities that are really quite strong. Um, And I think it makes American higher education unique. Mm -hmm. Okay, great.
1: Um, Do you wanna say a little bit more about, um, so I'm thinking of the the chapter, the American idea of the university, the next one is about the multiversity. Um, Could you explain a little bit more about what you, um, the sort of history that you trace in that chapter?
0: Yes, I mean, well, part of the problem then is when you, uh, with the expansion of the research university into multiple disciplines, the growth of graduate programs, um, of course, the growth of college athletics, you throw in that as well. All of a sudden, the, the university gets much larger, and the unity that was in the uh, liberal arts college broke apart in many ways. I mean, there's still obviously the liberal arts colleges at most of the American research universities. But uh, what happened was, and especially graduate programs tend to be more siloed, and of course then athletics is siloed, and you get these different silos, and the interdisciplinary nature of the university, particularly with its growth um, after the you know, 1960s, starts to take off, and so people disciplines are not talking to each other as much, and that's when you really see what Clark Kerr calls the multiversity. Uh, where you have all these different silos and interest groups arguing for their territories and their disciplines and a lot of competition and really the breakdown of what in so many ways in the early European universities was this ideal situation. Whereas uh, some groups like Eastern Orthodox church emphasized sort of the separation of theology from the university and wasn't involved. The Roman Catholic church, had this inner, really this integration of theology into all the liberal arts disciplines. And it really made for a more cohesive understanding of the world. Um, There's a coherence was prized uh, in the university and the sense of the unity of truth was really upheld. Okay,
1: great, thank you. Um, So I study um, American literature. (laughs) Um, So this this next question is kind of um, influenced by that. Um, so American culture has often been described as very practical and results oriented, um, de- which I think is um, contrasts quite a bit with some definitions of the liberal arts. So for example, um, Zena Hitz, um, she uh, was interviewed um, on, for the Liberating Arts um, for a, a previous interview a few weeks ago. Um, she says that the liberal arts is learning for its own sake. Um, and, and there's something that seems to me um, to be a little um, un-American about that. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking in particular of Alexis de Tocqueville, who toured the United States in the 1830s. Um, and, I, and I'm going to quote something that he wrote from his book, Democracy in America, which was published in 1835. He says, Americans are so practical, so confused, so excited, so active, that but little time remains to them for thought. Um, and then he elsewhere implies that um, Americans are too busy for philosophy. Um, and I think a philosophy is you know, one, of the, um, one of the important things about a liberal arts education, you know, that philosophy is supposed to you know, free the mind. Um, and so I'm wondering um, what you think of this description of American culture, how you think it affects our ability to sustain liberal arts educational institutions?
0: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, I rarely disagree with Tocqueville, but I'm going to disagree with him here.
1: Okay. And okay. I rarely
0: will argue that against Americans being practical because, man, they, I mean, Americans are very pragmatic. But when you compare universities, I mean, American universities to around the world, what really is striking is the importance of the liberal arts um, and liberal arts colleges. Most institutions around the world do not have this core liberal arts colleges. And in fact which you'll see is a lot more technical institutes. Um, Even France, after the the French Revolution started all these technical institutes, they abolished the university. Um, The UK has had Oxford and Cambridge, but a lot of their other universities have been very pragmatic uh, in that sense. So really, when you look around the world, um, who is the carrier of the liberal arts tradition? It's a lot of American colleges and universities. Um, In fact, I mean, around the world, they don't call anything colleges. Colleges are you know, like residential colleges. But in America, we have these things called liberal arts colleges, um, and they're not within universities, they're standalone. So in some ways we've been not very pragmatic there. And another evidence to this is we have this odd thing that we think we need to educate the whole student. That's really weird around the world. Um, in fact, we invest a lot of money in this whole area of student uh, affairs which around the world, they don't invest a lot of money in student affairs staff to help educate the manager being the whole person. Um, And so like you go to other countries, they'll be like, you know, staff people in residence halls. Oh, you Mm -hmm. mean residence halls are meant to kind of form character? In Australia, for example, they talked, one of the the authors of the idea for the Australian University, he made this comment, he says, he kind of basically says, we didn't have all this moralistic talk about the university forming character like they did in America. You know, we were actually the Australians claim that they were more pragmatic. It was all about, you know, helping the state and, and helping people get jobs. Um, so I'd say, yeah, the Australians probably were more pragmatic than the Americans. Americans have had this weird idea. And I would say it comes from our religious heritage of the colleges that uh, the university and the college is supposed to form the whole person. Um, and is supposed to shape their character. So yeah, I, it's, um, I don't think we are that pragmatic in some respects.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful point. So I guess maybe Churchill should have gone to Australia and you know, he shouldn't have uh, limited that comment maybe to, um, to Americans. Um, and a lot of conversations about the liberal arts educators trace their work back to ancient Greece and figures like um, Plato and Socrates. Um, do you think that this is where um, American educators tra- tra- trace their work back to? Um, and are there other figures that you think um, we should be talking about when we're thinking about this heritage?
0: Sure, I, I certainly don't. I always think you need to acknowledge your heritage and those people who have gone before you and you know the roots of the grand intellectual tradition like the Greek tradition. Uh, that being said, I think Christians are probably too quick to run to that heritage without, rec- without looking into some of their own heritage uh, and to those who have also critiqued that heritage. Um, I think in particular, like Augustine. Um, Augustine was no fan of the liberal arts, actually. I mean, well, he wasn't like he was denigrate them, but he certainly critiqued them strongly in the confessions from his Christian background because he saw the liberal arts as providing all these tools, but he realized, you know what? A lot of the tools I used for bad ends. And so you have to get your desires right. You have to get your loves ordered right or else the liberal arts are really going to corrupt you. And he would say the liberal arts corrupted him. He also saw that the, you know, there's a lot of corruption in the liberal arts curriculum at the time. And he says, you know, why are we reading all these Homeric tales and things like that about adultery? I mean, why don't we have some, you know, noble, and ennobling virtuous tales. Um, so yeah, I uh, I think we need to you know look at some of these examples about how should we tr- uh, critique perhaps that past, pagan cultural tradition. Hugh of St. Victor would be another one. Um, Hugh does a great job of uh, really focusing on, okay, what is the theological purpose of higher education? Well it's to recover the Mago day? I mean, what does it mean to be fully human as image bearers of God? And, you know, that's much different than say Aristotle or uh, Plato. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, that's really, that's
1: really wonderful. Um, the subtitle of your book is Unifying Christian Higher Education in a Fragmented Age. Um, and so I think we, we kind of got to this already a little bit um, with the discussion of the multi-university. Um, but could you talk more about what you mean by fragmented?
0: Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, we did mention it in terms of sort of fragmented of disciplines. And uh, that's one thing. I mean, there's the emphasis on specialization, and so uh, most students kind of come thinking I'm coming here for my major to specialize and to get a job. I interview first year students uh, all the time. I you mean, know, I've done a hundred or, or looked at a hundred of these transcripts just uh, recently, and almost all the first years that's what they think of as the purpose of the university. Perhaps a little bit of self discovery, but they certainly don't think it's uh, oh I want I need to like in the older days I need to have a holistic view of God the cosmos the natural world and humanity. Um, And I need to have sort of coherent view of that. That's not what they're coming for. And so uh, that's really where one of the ways we've been fragmented. Another way is, for example, one of my areas is moral education. And I also teach in the areas of student life. Well, um, when it comes to moral education, it used to be uh, built on the first moral education textbook in America was by Thomas Clapp, the president of Yale, who talked about, recovering kind of like Hugh of St. Victor, the character qualities represented by God. And that's how you recover the Mago Dei, the being made in the image of God, is you bear God, I mean, you show God's character. Whereas today, I mean, we slowly, because of disagreements, we moved away from that. And so now then people, they move to, okay, let's teach people to be good gentlemen. Well, let's now teach them to be good professionals. And so you only focus on fragments of the human person and excellence in those fragments. Um, Most recently now, what does it mean to be an excellent citizen? And these are all good things. I mean, I'm not, I don't knock those things but they're only fragments of who we are. Um, And so we don't have um, this overarching sort of vision of, you know, what does it mean to be fully human that encompasses all these fragments? Um,
1: Would you say that um, general education is part of that fragmentation.
0: Absolutely. In yeah. fact, it is part of my book argument. I mean, I critique general education because we don't really have an overall vision for it. In fact, scholars, ever since general education started back around the turn of the century in 1900, around there, they really they talked about how we really don't have a coherent picture of what general education is supposed to do. Uh, most recently, we talk about it in terms of competencies, well, competencies, I mean, that's just kind of these little things you pick and choose, you know, critical thinking, whatever that is, um, you know, learning how to write or something like that. But there's no sort of overall vision of what uh, we're trying to accomplish. And so, yeah, general education contributes to that, I would argue. And I would argue, go so far to say, actually, my, the book I'm uh, completing right now is that we need to totally revamp general education uh, in ways that brings together a more comprehensive vision of human flourishing.
1: Okay, yeah, I think um, I'm gonna quote something from Restoring the Soul of the University that I think relates to that, that uh, people would appreciate hearing. But you say that general education does not provide an integrative education. It provides a way to acquire particular kinds of human human capacities, a particular university deems important. Um, could you say a little bit more what you mean about a particular university?
0: Um, sure, I mean, basically, uh, you know, for accreditation right now, what, what universities have to do is they have to show that their general education uh, achieves helping students obtain certain capacities. And these capacities usually are fairly random, although some of them are, you know, pretty consistent about, oh, communication skills, critical thinking, these kinds of things. But there's no, uh, I mean, it's sort of a grab bag of things um, that they put together. And, you know, and it varies by university to university. Which is probably okay. I mean, I think the pluralism is is okay because we have these different visions of human flourishing, but it's not like they really offer comprehensive, different comprehensive visions of human flourishing. They just kind of have different bags of capacities.
1: So maybe um, your current research project um, will speak to this question, this next question. Um, but I think that you do seem to get to it in restoring the soul of the university as well. Um, But um, what um, what do you what do you think um, colleges and universities should be doing to address that fragmentation that you also write about?
0: Yes. Um, Well, I would say particularly for Christian colleges and universities, I mean, they do a pretty good job of this. But um, one of the things I already mentioned would be to to revise your general education, because that's where in the curriculum that you uh, kind of set forth a vision. And my vision I'm going to present, and I mentioned a little bit in Restoring the Soul, is we need to talk about what does it mean to be excellent in the various our various identity domains. We all have, I would say we have as Christians, these core identities. Uh, we're made in the image of God. We are in Christ. Um, and also we're members of the body of Christ. And those three are really our foundational identities from which hopefully we gather our worth, and, um, Uh, a a foundation in God, and also gives us a sense of, okay, this is to hopefully who I should become. I should be an image bearer of God or imitator of Christ, as Ephesians 5.1 says. Um, Well, with that in mind, then we can go, okay, what does it look like to be an excellent friend? What does it look like to be an excellent neighbor? What does it look like to be an excellent spouse? I mean, these are really the things with which we deal with our whole lives, and we struggle. And this is how we evaluate our good life. I mean, what does it mean to be, I would say, an excellent steward of our culture, of our resources, of the natural world? And uh, these are things we're called to in scripture as well. Um, and I would say we need to have interdisciplinary courses that focus the conversation on these matters. I will say students love these kind of courses. They're often written up in the Chronicle of Higher Education. Oh, you know, so-and-so is doing Marriage 101 at, at uh, Northwestern University. Um and we think, oh, those are two maybe shallow, but in reality, those are the, some of the more challenging, difficult areas of our lives ever. And we need to be scholarly informed on them. Um, and we need the different lenses, right? We need psychological, sociological, theological lenses to think about friendship, marriage, or economics. You know, when uh, dealing with personal finance. But yeah, and that's that's what I'd argue we need to address in our general education. What mm-hmm. I, I call them the great identities.
1: That's a great identities. I look forward to reading more about that in your forthcoming project. (laughs) Um, So, um, you mentioned that interdisciplinary courses are are one feature of um, revise. you know, that one recommendation or a feature of of what you're recommending um, we should be doing when we're revising core curriculum. Are there other um, things that you think are, um, you know, that should be mentioned? besides interdisciplinary courses, are there, um, you know, more units, um, yeah, in well,
0: I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I realize. you know, probably one of the things I need to mention that I mentioned in the book there is, um, the real source of unity needs to come from theology because theology is the only discipline that can actually worship what it studies. Um, the other disciplines we shouldn't wor- worship, uh, what we study. And so, We need to, I think, you know, have theology set that, you know, be restored to its rightful place. But also theology needs to sort of instead of being, as it was referred to in the past, the queen of the sciences, it needs to be really the servant of the sciences, the social sciences Mm -hmm. and humanities. And I would argue it does that by I think one of the things uh, colleges, universities could do would even have a say have a theologian or biblical scholar who basically their task is really to serve the humanities and to write things together with people in the humanities um, and write things together with people in the social sciences, maybe have another person in that area, or write things together with people in the sciences to help us uh, develop this kind of integrative scholarship that would then also bring everything back within an overarching Christian narrative in sophisticated ways, right? It's hard to have two PhDs, although some people do it, um, but, uh, it's also, I think, demonstrates just the body of Christ We're coming together our different parts instead of being siloed, but we come together and serve each other.
1: I love that concept of theology being the servant there rather than the rather than the queen. Um, and I would say that um, the program that um, your book inspired at Sterling College really kind of um, I think inspired our theology department to servants and to uh, work with other departments which has been you know really really great for us
0: great um, here. thanks yeah
1: yeah well thank you um does the liberal arts have a role to play in restoring the university
0: i think it it certainly has a part uh i mean we need um we need the liberal arts. I mean, we need these, uh, you know, different ways of knowing um, even in our Christianity, we need to think about uh, these sorts of different ways of, of, areas of knowledge and ways of knowing. Um, however, I think we need to probably go back and start. Okay. It starts with restoring the soul of the university starts with God, the triune God and, and worship of God. And it also starts with the help of the church and theology. I think those are really starting with those three things first, I mean, Augustine was very much this way of, you know, you start with those three things, then you get your loves ordered right. You you can have humility. You're not scared of questions. You don't feel like you have to be God. Um, I mean, Augustine's confessions are just filled with loads of questions uh, that he doesn't answer. Um, but, uh, yeah, and it starts then. Then you can use those tools provided by the liberal arts to bring about um, a a cohesive understanding, not a thorough, I mean, none of us can ever achieve that, but certainly a more cohesive and unified understanding of, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. Okay, great.
1: Yeah, that reminds me of something that... um, I read at the end of "Restoring the Soul of the University" that you point out that the virtues are hardly ever listed. The Christian virtues are hardly ever listed, you know, in um, a university's um,
0: oh, yeah.
1: goals and objectives or or mission. Um, and they really should. I would love to see them there. Um, so I think that's a, I think that's a really great idea.
0: Um, you know, what a, just a note on that. One of the things Baylor did recently is they re uh, they redesigned their gen ed, not in the way I would have, but still they redesigned it, but using the virtues as a lens, which I think is you know uh, mm-hmm. that is yeah. one positive and way that you could do that.
1: Okay, yeah, that's really that's really great to hear. Um, I'm going to um, quote from your book again. Um, so um, you say that Christian education must begin and end with the Christian theological narrative that reminds us who we were created to be, what it means to be a slave and the liberating arts that help one become free. Um, and, and I um, wanna draw attention to the fact that this project is called the Liberating Arts, um, you know, which is funded by a CCCU grant um, called Between Pandemic and Protest. Um, so um, what, do you, what, what would you say academic study um, has to contribute to liberation?
0: hmm yeah that's a, another great question i love these questions um i would say uh well first i mean liberation starts with christ i mean christ is the one who liberates us from bondage to sin uh and those are you know personal sins but in structural sins I mean, i mean sin sort of widely understood christ is a true liberator of all for humanity and creation of sin and so i think that's really where it starts and i think with that idea you you have a good, you start with a um, helpful premise that, you know what, you don't have to go to college or university to be liberated. You know, for Aristotle, this is, you know, liberal arts are kind of the education of the free person. Well, no, uh, the church is what provides the education for the liberating, the real liberating education for society uh, to liberate us from sin. So as, I think if it starts there now, where do the liberating arts then? I the, So liberating arts, I would say are first of, you know, just uh, you know, worship of God, acknowledgement of God, a confession. Uh, then, of course, sanctification—you know, confession—and then uh, looking to Christ for our sufficiency in liberation. And then, also, of course, sanctification of acquiring that uh, Christ-like character. And you don't have to go to the university to do that. I think that's important to note. So then, what does the university add? Well, I think, I mean, one of the <clears throat> things the university adds is, I mean, there are capacities God has designed us to. To develop um, that can help us um, address and reverse the effects of the fall. For example, COVID is happening right now. I mean, we need um, great scientists right now who have studied creation, who have studied how, you know, disease and how to reverse the effects of on um, the effects of disease in society, you know, through immunization. That I would hope Christians would consider part of their calling. I mean, not just evangelism. Not just becoming a minister, or not even just becoming a theologian, but becoming, you know, a great um, academic scholar who creates, you know, creates a vaccine, for example. Um, or we've, you know, I know you've uh, we've had recently been I mean, issues with justice. Well, I mean, one of those. Uh, I mean, certainly Christians can be just without going to the university, but one of the ways the university can help is to study how can we um, establish more justice in society. Um, what are the effects of injustice, and how can we reverse those? I mean, we need thoughtful, um, deep-thinking Christians to study that virtue. Now, it's not the only one. I mean, that's a little bit the problem today: is kind of this fragmentation. We think, oh, being an excellent citizen—that's what's really matters. Versus, no, I mean, justice is you know important for being an excellent citizen, but we also need to think about agape love and marriage, um, forgiveness and friendship, uh, other virtue, you know, gentleness um when we deal with neighbors or even gentleness in our in our civic life uh, some forgotten i would say it's a forgotten virtue so um, that's some ways i think it can contribute
1: yeah that's really well put um, so i've mentioned um the cccu grant between pandemic and protest um, and so we've, we've already kind of gotten a little bit into this, but um, I'm wondering if um, some of these, some of these um, recent things that are going on, um, so the COVID-19 pandemic, the recent protests regarding racism and justice, um, have they changed your perspective um, on the purpose of higher education and the liberal arts? Um, are there things that you think are important for educators to keep in mind at this particular time?
0: Yeah, I would say um, it hasn't changed my perspective in the sense that I think uh, Christian universities are always to be contributing to human flourishing, no matter what country you're in, no matter what we face. And you're also supposed to be contributing to what I'd call, I'd say that both the creative, the creation of of knowledge, the creation of culture, um, but also the, um, the redemption of learners and learning. And so, you know, that means reversing the fall in every aspect of life and every discipline has areas where it's fallen. Um, you know, whether your profession's being a lawyer or a doctor or, um, you know, a baseball coach or a, you know, orchestra, you know, leading the orchestra. I mean, there's, how do you go about, you know, creating wonderful music, creating, you know, great um, athletes, but then also reversing the effects of the fall that are, are part of any profession. And so I think um, you know, what we've certainly seen, for example, like with police violence, um, that's gonna be true around the world with all kinds of different races. And we always need to be working on how do we get justice right in that police profession? Um, so I wouldn't say it's changed, it's just amplified the things I think we already should, should be doing um, in that respect. Now there's gonna be, I think, because of things that happen in a culture and obviously the pandemic's worldwide, there's things we need to focus on right away. Uh, in certain cultures. And um, and sometimes we need to prioritize those things. Although sometimes you you gotta be careful about letting culture prioritize uh, or make the priorities for you. Although in these two cases, obviously these are very important. Okay,
1: great. Um, Is there anything else that you um, would like to say about your work that you think is relevant to this conversation?
0: Um, you know, I think we've covered. <laughs> I mean, those questions were very thorough. We've, we've covered uh, most of it. I, I do think probably the one last thing I would say is I think Christians maybe lack a little courage sometimes of thinking outside the box regarding some of the our inheritance in higher education, even regarding the liberal arts. Um, and so we kind of quote uh, sayings and we're kind of used to the things, the ways have always been, and perhaps we need to think even more radically than we have been. Uh, And some of that can be helped by by going back further, even, you know, like for me, I mean, being informed by Augustine or Hugh of St. Victor or just others, Peter or Amos. um, I think, you know, those kind of sources can help us go, wow, there's some of these radical thinkers who are thinking in Christian ways. I don't see now. Um, So that, I think we need to, have the courage to step outside of that. Oh, it's hard. You know, when our institutions are being buffeted by financial pressures and we're just trying to survive, I, I get it. I mean, it's, it's hard um, and now the pandemic. Um, so yeah, you have to b- balance that with some prudential wisdom as well.
1: Yeah, well, and I think ending with uh, with prudence and courage um, is a really great way to end. I like that, The the last, the last word being courage. Um, So thank you so much for your time. Um, Thank you so much for this conversation. And I um, wish you the best as you continue on to the semester.
0: Well, thank you, Rachel. Yeah, it's been wonderful to share this conversation with you and wish you best, Sterling, as well.
1: Thank you.